you students should know that it's entirely possible for professors to give you a C in their class and then introduce you like I was introduced today. (laughs) Holy moly. And I'm honored to have Presley here. It's one of the great honors of my life to have a human named after you. In my other congregations, I've had dogs named after me. A human's quite nice. To be here today in a place where I, place that I love, amongst people that I love, means a great deal to me. I find myself with regularity listening to chapel sermons. I believe I do so in a quest to hear good preaching. But I also think somewhere deep in my soul, I long to be in community with you. And I hope you know that, that there are pastors and churches near and far that care about you, that love you, and that celebrate God's call on your life. And so to be here today is an honor, to be before you a double honor. I'm sorry if in the reading of the text today you felt a dampening of your Easter enthusiasm. I was afraid that might happen. I mean, if you're like me, you walked in here with the smell of Easter lilies lingering in your nostrils, visions of a full sanctuary etched in your eyes, girls tugging at their dresses, boys pulling at their collars, neither of whom wanted to be dressed that way, but both were. As we all know, you cannot process resurrection adequately in casual wear. You probably walked in here today with echoes of Handel's Messiah ringing in your ears, or that great litany, Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. We are fresh off the dawn of God's glorious tomorrow, the ultimate victory of God over the forces of darkness, the grand surprise of all creation, only to discover in today's text that Jesus walks in the room and shows the disciples His wounds. I hope this doesn't sound sacrilegious to you, but I find this a tad bit anticlimactic. I don't associate wounds with Easter, and I certainly don't associate Easter with wounds. Lilies, yes. Trumpets, of course. Glory and wonder, absolutely. But wounds? Is there room in your Easter for wounds? This just isn't how I expect the story to go. For most of my life, I thought the resurrection sort of erased Jesus' wounds. The resurrection was a sign of God's victory, God's triumph. And what have wounds to do with victory and triumph? This is a time for parties and coronations, but wounds? When my wife and I came to seminary, I pastored a small country church not far from here... And in my study, I hung a crucifix. My wife was raised Catholic, and so when we married, we were given about 500 crucifixes. The Romans would have been satisfied. I hung one on the far wall of my study. One day, a man came in to visit with me, and on his way out of my study, he looked at the crucifix and said, What What are you doing with this? I said, Well, my wife was raised Catholic. I just thought I'd hang it in the office. 
And he took it off the wall and he tossed it to me. And he said to me, my Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. He is risen. And I stood there holding that crucifix in my hands. I I think I know. I think I know what that man was saying. Resurrection is about victory. It's about triumph. What place have wounds with Easter? Wounds are disappointing at Easter. And to make matters worse, to add to the disappointment, this is the gospel of John, for crying out loud. John's Christology is of the highest sort. It soars with the eagles. In John, there is no humble birth in the straw of Bethlehem, just the Word, which was with God and was God in the beginning. In John, there is no temptation, no struggle with Satan out in the wilderness, just the I am statements over and over and over again, reminiscent of Moses and the burning bush, Yahweh. In John, there is no Gethsemane, no struggle over the will of God, sweating drops of blood, none of that in the Gospel of John. When the arresting party comes to take Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, they say, we're looking for Jesus. He says, I am He. And the arresting party falls on their faces before Him. From the cross in John... There is no cry of dereliction. No, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just, it's finished. As if he was orchestrating the whole thing. This is the gospel of John. When Jesus rises from the dead in the gospel of John, I expect him to parade right down Main Street in Jerusalem while the crowds fall on their knees in homage and respect of the risen king. I expect that word which was with God in the beginning, to thunder again and again, I am that I am that I am that I am, while all creation trembles underfoot. I expect Jesus to ride up to Pilate's palace and say to him, Pilate, you wanted the truth, but you can't handle the truth. You have ten minutes to clean out your desk. That's what I expect in the Gospel of John. But that's not what you get. Jesus does not appear in public at all. He walks into a small room, into a small crowd of those who believe in him, (laughs) partly, and he shows them his wounds. Of course, as a minister, I've gotten used to people showing me their wounds. You should know that. I didn't know that at first. It comes with the job. As a minister, people will show you their wounds. You walk into a hospital room. How are you today, Mr. Jones? Oh, pastor, come on in. You won't believe it. They removed 400 feet of my small intestine yesterday. But the incision's healing nicely. Would you like to see it? No? No? I'm good. Oh, come on. They say it's healing nicely. No, I just had breakfast. I'm good. Well, it's right here under the gown. Yep, there it is. Thank you. Or on Wednesday night, does anyone have any praises or prayers? You know my uncle whose kidney stones we've been praying for? Yes, Janet, I remember your uncle. Well, he passed all the kidney stones, and he's an artist. He made a necklace out of all those kidney stones, and I'm wearing it here in the room tonight. I don't know why people do that, but it comes with the job. Sometimes I wonder why people put their pain on display and show their wounds. 
And sometimes I wonder why they don't. And sometimes the wounds are of a different sort altogether. The young couple takes you to lunch after worship because they want to talk to you about something. Pastor, we have tried and tried and tried for years to get pregnant. We've played by the rules. We've done it right. We've gone to hundreds of baby showers for our friends. And each time, behind the smiles and the gifts, our souls shriveled a little. And just last week, we discovered our 17-year-old daughter, 17-year-old niece, excuse me, is pregnant. And it's an accident. Every Sunday we gather and we talk about how good God is, but our nursery is empty. Middle-aged couple walks in your office and says, Pastor, we just wanted you to know before you heard it from someone else that our son, who has been addicted to drugs for years, was arrested yesterday. And it's ugly. It's all over the news. We heard from our preachers that if you raise your child in the way he should go, when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And we did. We thought we did. It hurts to lose your son and your theological paradigm in one phone call. You visit one of your parishioners in the nursing home. She says, Pastor, I don't know why I'm still here. I spend my day calculating my proximity to the nearest restroom, and I don't know why I'm here. And in a world that measures human worth by production and consumption, this woman wants to know why she's here. Or you stand on a hillside while the north wind blows through the overcoats of a crowd standing around the casket of a 21-year-old boy who was killed in a car wreck. They want answers. They want answers that will soothe their wounds. But there are no answers that can reach wounds that deep, even if you had them. And yet they want you to say something. What happens in those moments is not just about the brain. Because pain is not a rational category. Then again, neither is resurrection. Jesus walked in and he didn't give them answers. No analysis of resurrection here. No theological treatise. He just walked in the room and showed them his wounds. You know, if I'm honest with myself, the more I think about it, I'm not shaking my fist at John. And it's not really that I'm disappointed in Easter either. It's just that this isn't how I've usually thought about God. This is not the God I expected. I've tended to think of God through the lens of the omnis. Power, might. A God who is somewhat aloof and distant from the world. A God who reigns over the world in a sort of detached objectivity. A God who is primarily power and control. The mantra, God is on his throne. I've parroted that all my life. And of course, when that's the primary lens through which you see God, then the ones most like God are those in control and those in power, those who have thrones. Those who bear the image of God are the rich and the mighty and the smart and the pretty. Around the time that John's gospel was written, throughout the Roman Empire, they hailed Caesar as Lord and God. And a few verses before our text for today. The angry Jewish mob before Pilate confesses, We have no king but 
Caesar. It makes perfect sense. Anyone can see it. He must be the Christ. He must be the anointed one or else he wouldn't have all that power. The power of life and death. The power of crucifixion. The power to create wounds in the palm of his hand. For most of my life, I thought of God as on the other side of wounds. God above the wounds. My theology, my Christology even, had no room for wounds. Until one day, I moseyed out with Moses out to the burning bush. I got close enough to feel the warmth of it, and I heard the great I Am say, I know, I know the pain of my people. And then there's this stubborn story where Jesus, the risen Jesus... The risen Jesus in the Gospel of John walks in the room and shows his disciples his wounds. The resurrection did not erase the marks of the cross. It made them eternal. Thomas was there that day. (laughs) Poor Thomas. When the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, Thomas said, I will not believe. I will not believe until I can stick my finger in the wound and see the wound. I will not believe unless I see evidence. And I, for one, do not blame Thomas. You cannot believe in a crucified Messiah. It doesn't fit the categories. Then again, neither does a resurrected one. Jesus walked through the walls and the categories and the heavy fog of Thomas' doubt. Thomas, reach here with your fingers. See the wounds. And did you hear what Thomas said? Did you hear what Thomas confessed? Under the heavy hand of Caesar and the dark shadow of empire, did you hear what Thomas said? Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Thomas beheld the power that power knows not of. You know that there is something alive in this world that's more powerful than power, don't you? All my life, I've said God is on the throne, but in the Gospel of John, the throne is a cross. And for Thomas, the wounds were not an impediment to resurrection, but the very means by which he recognized it. A few years ago, I went on a mission trip to India, We were based largely in the city of Hyderabad, but for part of the trip, we drove six hours out of the city, out into the middle of nowhere, where this church had established a small medical camp for victims of AIDS. In that part of India, contracting AIDS is something of a death sentence, given primitive medical care. And there is also a great stigma attached to the disease. Those who acquire it are often disowned by those they love most. And so this church had established a camp where people could receive treatment. On the way out there, I asked our host what we could expect. And he said, our society calls these people the untouchables. He said, you will see the death in their eyes. I said, well, what is it that you want us to do? And he smirked and he said, give them hope. 
We made it there and we walked under a tent, large tent. The men sat on one side, the women sat on the other. That's how they do it there. And I'm sitting in front of these men. I didn't know what to say to them. I told them they were created in the image of God. That for Jesus there were no untouchables. And that they were so precious to Jesus that he would give his life for them. While I'm talking, I notice a man, he came in a bit late, he sat in the back corner, his hair is unkempt, his body is dirty, his clothes are tattered and torn, and he sat there the whole time with his arms crossed as if he hated every word that was coming out of my mouth. I finished my talk, and the men came around one by one. They wanted me to pray for healing and to bless their little bottles of oil, closest thing to medicine they had. Second from the end, this man comes and he sits in front of me and he stares into my soul. Translator sitting next to me. And this man said, I'm a Hindu priest from a nearby village. But when I contracted AIDS, they kicked me out. My family kicked me out. Saying, what does he know of the divine? He has AIDS. But today, your God has become my God. And he paused while tears ran down his cheeks. I thought he was going to say, your God became my God because he created me in his image or he's on his throne or he has the power to heal. That's not what he said. He said, today your God has become my God because your God is the only God that knows what it feels like to die. That's what he said. But I think what really happened was that the risen Christ walked in the room and he saw the wounds. And he said, my Lord and my God. Did you know that according to at least one strand of Christian tradition, Thomas became a missionary and traveled all the way to India preaching the good news? Did you know that? I don't know where you'll end up, likely not India. Maybe a farming town in Texas where the farms are drying up. Maybe an inner city church where the poor sleep across the doorsteps. Maybe a well-to-do Ivy League university where the students have never had a need and limp for the simple fact that they're bored to death. I don't know. There's no telling. As in this text, Jesus breathes on us. And says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. I don't know where the wind will carry you. I don't know. But I do know this. Wherever you end up, there will be wounds. Creation will groan. Those in your care will groan. And somewhere your own soul will groan. And a large part of your ministry will be contingent upon what you do with the wounds. In fact, Henry Nouwen once wrote that there is no better image for a Christian minister than a wounded healer. In the book that bears that name, he writes, the beginning and the end of all Christian leadership is to give your life for others. And if you do that, if you take the wounds seriously, you will suffer along the way. There will be days when you yell into the dark abyss and there is no no reply. 
There will be days when you preach in the valley of the shadow of death and the only sound in the distance is the sound of your voice echoing off the valley walls. There will be days when you say to God, where in the world are you? When you say along with Thomas, I will not believe unless I see. I've heard about you. Heck, I talk about you every single week, but where are you? I guess it's fitting that Thomas was a twin. I see him nearly every morning when I look in the mirror. And I see him almost every pew in this room today. But it's about that time that Jesus walks in. Out of the tomb and through the walls, through the doubts. And he speaks peace to you and to me. And he can do that, you know. He can stand in the middle of wounds and speak peace because he knows our wounds like the palm of his hand. And somehow, in a way that I don't comprehend, his wounds are our wounds. And our wounds are his wounds. Your wounds have been crucified with Christ. And somehow, they have been raised with Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And my wounds, your wounds, and our wounds were raised with him. And by those wounds, we are healed. Thanks be to our Lord and our God. Amen.